So we're going to see these antibody-directed therapies coming into play for prostate cancer. And I'm hoping the first one will be available and approved for widespread use even this summer. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Dr. Stephen Clinton, a James prostate cancer expert and director of the Prostate Cancer Clinical Program. Prostate cancer is the second most common type of cancer diagnosed in men, second only to skin cancer. Every year, there are about 250,000 new diagnoses and 35,000 deaths. Steve will fill us in on why so many men get prostate cancer, prevention, the importance of screening, the basics of active surveillance, new treatments, and the James Multidisciplinary Prostate Clinic. Welcome, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Let's really start with the basics, the overview. What exactly does the prostate do and, and why is it so susceptible to cancer? Yeah, great question. So the prostate is a small organ about the size of a plum, or some people say a large walnut, and it is just below your bladder. And this gland provides some secretions that are important for reproduction. It probably has some value in processing of sperm to make them more efficient in fertilizing eggs. So it has a role in in uh, human reproduction. But beyond that, it uh, has no other essential function in humans and seems to create quite a bit of trouble for people. Oh, that might be a clue right there that if it's for reproduction, as you get older and your body doesn't quite do that as well, and it's it's not needed anymore, that, I don't know, does that lead to the cancer? Well, you know, I think mother nature created all of our different tissues and organs to perform very well up through reproductive ages, you know, to preserve this, the species. But, you know, until the last uh, couple hundred years, people didn't live, you know, the, the life expectancies that we have today. And as almost everyone knows, virtually every physiologic process starts to decline from your mid thirties onward and some at a greater rate than others. And, and I think the prostate is prone to multiple different kinds of illnesses that uh, people sometimes experience ranging from what's called an infection or prostatitis, which can be a chronic recurring problem. Then a second problem called benign prostatic hypertrophy, which is where the gland gradually enlarges in in a way that often causes some obstructive or urinary issues as men get older. And the third main problem, of course, is the cancer issue. And all of these, it sounds like, as I think I read somewhere that the average age of diagnosis for prostate cancer is like in the mid sixties or something. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, I can tell you that prostate cancer, because it is a heterogeneous disease, and I often tell my patients that this is like going to Baskin and Robbins and getting 33 flavors of ice cream. Prostate cancer also comes in many, many different varieties that behave very differently. And so, 
the key issue is, is really understanding how a cancer behaves in an individual. Now, getting back to, to the age, I'm at a point in life where I've been doing this for 30 years, and I can recall at the very beginning, it would be really rare for me to see someone in their 40s uh, with prostate cancer. And now we're quite used to seeing some of our patients come in with prostate cancer diagnosed in the 40s. And we've even seen people in their 30s with prostate cancer, but the average age is in the 60s. Wow. Is there any way to prevent it? Well, that's... uh, really an area of great interest in and research. And it would be a long, long discussion if I went into all the little nuances. But let's just sort of say that there are opportunities to think about strategies for prevention. And I'll just summarize a great big literature on lifestyle and say that a good healthy diet that follows dietary guidelines for America coupled with fitness, exercise, avoidance of adult onset obesity are a good place to start. There's even some interest in cigarette smoking being associated with more aggressive types of prostate cancer. So I think not smoking, in addition to having a great benefit for cancers of the lung, upper airway, bladder, esophagus, and a host of others may have some impact also in in the area of prostate cancer. And the other key thing that people need to realize is that prostate cancer doesn't happen overnight. And I've had patients that uh, come into my clinic with a new diagnosis of prostate cancer, and they think it's because an electric power line was put up over their property last year. Well, I'm sorry, that doesn't cause it. If you do autopsy studies in young men in their 20s, and these come from uh, autopsy studies done in, in wars in the past or in cities where there's a lot of early death from uh, crime and automobile accidents. If you do autopsies on men in their 20s, you'll find 20, 30, 40% of men already have pre-malignant changes in their prostate in their 20s. And so we think that the beginning of the prostate cancer cascade can occur usually right after puberty when your testosterone is is raging and all those uh, impacts on the rest of your body, that's when your prostate really develops. So it's a long process and there are probably many factors that contribute to the etiology. And um, in the realm of interventions for prevention, there have been two very large prostate cancer prevention trials, one with a drug called finasteride that uh, inhibits the ability of testosterone to make the prostate uh, grow and do its function. And that showed a significant benefit. And this was a study that uh, had well over 250 men on the trial at at OSU. Uh, It was a large national trial of 30,000 men. And indeed, this drug will reduce the risk of uh, prostate cancer significantly, but it won't prevent all cancer. And it does have some side effects in terms of um, sexual dysfunction, perhaps, and some other minor issues. But it isn't appropriate for everyone. And I think you're, you're not going to put it in the drinking water. You're going to select high risk people and potentially consider using this drug for prevention. 
Oh, that raises an interesting question. I know I've talked to people with um, colon cancer and breast cancer where they're high at risk based on family history and some genetic mutations. What is it the same thing with prostate cancer that a family history yes. is what puts you at high risk? Yeah, that's one of the factors is your, your inheritance. And I think this world of genetics and cancer has uh, rapidly grown over the last two decades. And, and the areas where it initially took off is in breast cancer. We're very familiar with genes called BRCA or BRCA1 and 2 that put women at risk of breast cancer at an early age and colon cancer where there are, are uh, syndromes like Lynch syndrome that are associated with specific inherited genes. Well, what we now know that there are also about 30 or so genes that put men at risk of prostate cancer. And I want you to think about it like, like this. It's not that any one of these genes causes everyone with the gene to have prostate cancer, but it's more like making you more susceptible. So should I be getting this test to see if I have one of these 30 genetic mutations or is it, we're not quite there yet? It, this is not a test for everyone. Just like uh, right now we don't do colon, breast or other cancer susceptibility gene testing on everyone that walks in the door to your primary care clinic. Now, I think in the future, if we do have some type of universal healthcare system in the United States <laughs> where genetic testing would be covered and reimbursed appropriately, and there were not unforeseen consequences of having genetic testing done and people being labeled, this is a very controversial area. I mean, you would not want to have insurance denied because you harbor a certain kind of gene for a disease. Yeah. And in the United States, we haven't resolved all of these issues yet about testing, not just for prostate, but for any cancer or in other inherited diseases. So that's worthy of an entire podcast in itself. So how do you know, what are the symptoms? What should men, once they hit maybe 55 or 60, what should you look sure. out for? Well, let's, we'll talk about the diagnosis. Let me add one other comment on the genetics that right now at the James, we do have a prostate cancer genetics clinical program uh, underway. And we are one of the few places in the country that has a dedicated genetics counselor that is available for every one of our patients that has prostate cancer to do a family history, to do testing if they would like, and to counsel the patient and any other relevant family members such as children. And I, and I just want to remind all those that might be listening, some of the genes that impact risk of prostate cancer are the same ones that impact breast cancer and may impact colon cancer. And so it really has implications for children or siblings that are both men and women. Okay, so enough about the genetics. Now, what should men be thinking as they kind of move along in their years? This area of how do you know you have prostate cancer is a bit complicated. And that is complicated because uh, about 30 years ago, 
someone made a really seminal discovery that there was a marker in the blood, and this is called prostate-specific antigen. And this is a protein that can be made by the prostate and is made in higher amounts by the cancer and is released into your blood. And this is a protein that can be measured with a test, and it's called the PSA test. And almost everyone who has prostate cancer will show a change in their PSA at a point in time that is before they would ever have symptoms of a cancer. So PSA is a wonderful tool, but unfortunately, over the years, it hasn't been applied uh, perfectly. And there's a couple of reasons that uh, this has led to trouble, the, the PSA testing. And here's what they are. So one, PSA can go up because of infections in the prostate. It can also go up as you age simply because of benign prostatic hypertrophy. So it can, can increase and give a person a false signal that they might have cancer. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So as PSA rises, if it changes significantly from one year to another or rises uh, above a certain level based on your age, then it does warrant a biopsy. And when you do a biopsy, you are getting a small sample of the entire prostate, and you will then have a pathologist carefully review that biopsy and determine whether you have a prostate cancer or not. Now, in prostate cancer, one of the things is that has led to confusion is that when you get a biopsy that says, yes, you have cancer, what we have learned is what's more important is what is its histologic feature? And what I mean is what does it look like under the microscope? Is this a cancer that looks relatively close to normal and is perhaps very benign in its appearance? Or is it one that looks more aggressive? And this is scored on something called the Gleason grading system. And these scores range from two to 10, but I can assure you that you rarely ever see one that is below a five or below. So we're really usually working within a six to 10 range. Now, what we have learned over the years is that a Gleason six is often not a very aggressive cancer. Now, what we have learned in recent years is that perhaps many people with a small Gleason 6 cancer are better off being initially left alone and monitored, something called active surveillance. People that have a higher grade cancers, particularly the 8, 9s, and 10s, are the ones that most certainly warrant a consideration of treatment. So in the old days, if it came back as cancer, everybody was getting treated. That led a lot of people with low-grade cancers to perhaps get treatments they otherwise may not have needed. And that led to a lot of over-treatment. So and now we're much better at discerning who should be getting treatment and who should not. So in the past, they didn't have, before the Gleason scale, people who would have had a two or a three were getting treatment they didn't needed. 
before it got to that six, seven, eight level? Well, I would say anyone with a Gleason six or below, and the Gleason scoring's been around, but it just wasn't used as we do now. See, in the old days, if it was cancer, the, both the patient and the doctor said, we got to get rid of this. And yeah. they were treated. And we were over-treating. There were too many people with low-grade cancers detected by a very minimal change in PSA that were getting radical prostatectomies, aggressive radiation, and they would have all the side effects encumbered with those treatments. And we know we were over-treating. Now, what happened then about 15 to 20 years ago is that a so-called expert committee convened nationally to address this problem of over-treatment. And this committee made a decision that I profoundly disagree with, and that was that we're doing too much screening with PSA, and that maybe we shouldn't be doing this because it leads to overtreatment. Well, that was an illogical decision. I mean, the real thing should have been, we should screen, we should detect cancers, but we should only treat the ones that need to be treated. And this is where we're much better now. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It's like, let's accumulate all this data, but if we use it correctly rather than incorrectly, isn't that the whole, the goal? Yeah. yeah. And then this was where this led to a lot of confusion that we're paying for today. It led many people in primary care, internists, family practitioners to basically stop screening and say, you know, prostate cancer is an indolent disease. People are more likely to die with it than of it. And let's kind of cut back on this screening that's leading to overtreatment. Well, this was a big mistake because now what you're seeing, many people in the medical profession are still confused. Many people are not getting good screening and many cancers that ultimately are lethal are not being detected at an early point when they could be uh, cured. So one of our goals is we have to re-educate about screening making sure people know how to use PSA properly, make sure they use age-adjusted PSA values, make sure they look for changes serially over time. And I think we can do a much better job at detecting cancers earlier, treating the right people, and eliminating this 35,000 deaths that we have every year uh, in the U.S., which is a tragic. Wow. That's a lot to think about. And we're going to take a quick break to think about it a little. And when we come back, Steve will fill us in a little more on the process of this active surveillance strategy. And we'll also talk about some new advances in treating prostate cancer. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Dr. Stephen Clinton, Director of the Prostate Cancer Clinical Program at the James. And so, Steve, before 
I was a little confused about what to do, that all these contradictory philosophies and treatment strategies and what to, so what should, should I do? What should men do? Yeah. So just like you would go into your primary care doctor and you have a physical every so often or every year where people do your blood pressure, they do your pulse, they do a check on your cholesterol. I think a PSA test, the first one in a person without a family history or another risk factor should start at age 40. And I know that may go against some of the other guidelines, but the first one at age 40 should be well below one. And anything above that should raise a red flag. If it's below one, you have no symptoms, no family history, you can probably wait five more years, go to 45, same thing. And if everything is great, wait to your 50 and get another check. Starting at age 50, I think men should get a PSA check every year, just like they check their blood pressure, their cholesterol, their triglycerides, their hemoglobin A1C for glucose abnormalities, and it should be part of a, a regular exam. And men, I think, should keep their own records. Put it in a file at home, keep a record, because we know people change jobs, they move, they get different healthcare insurance with different providers, keep your own record. And what you're looking for is any rise of 0.75 in one year should raise a little bit of a concern and a discussion with your primary care doctor about what to do, or a urologist if they are not sure. And in the age range from 50 to 60, your PSA for almost everyone is going to be you know, certainly below two. Uh, once people get up uh, around 70, you know, a normal range might be considered up to about four. So you want to keep in mind that uh, these things require careful monitoring over time, looking for a change, looking for a change in symptoms. And the old fashioned, what's called digital rectal exam, where a finger feels the prostate for lumps, bumps, nodules is often part of this and can be part of evaluating and screening. But I think annual PSA testing should be as routine as your cholesterol. Now, I do get that every year I'm over 50 and every year I get the blood drawn and get my PSA results. The numbers you just said that the one, the two, the four, is that the same? That's the Gleason numbers, right? No, no. The oh, Gleason is only done okay. on your biopsy. So, okay, so the so PSA is... in the blood is a concentration, just like cholesterol is so many milligrams per per milliliter of blood. PSA is a nano, nanomoles per milliliter of blood. So it's a number and a concentration. So and, say the say the number again where you yeah. So start to when be you're fifty, when you're in your forties and fifty to fifty, I mean PSA should be below one. Okay. Now, one of the things that nowadays when people can see their own medical records, you will notice that on the PSA test, you will get a number and then there's going to be a range that says what is normal, just like any other test. The problem with the PSA, they don't put in the normals that are appropriate for the person's age. They only have one normal and it's less than four. And that to me is a, is a problem in our healthcare system that the normal range for PSA ought to be put in there based upon the age of the individual. 
and they the should older. have different normal ranges for every decade of life. And they and it, don't. And it goes up as you get older. And yes, that can cause people but, to get. But when scared. you're in your 50s, yeah. it should be one or below. OK, so this leads me to active surveillance. You you, you it's a little higher than it should be, but not that high well like, wh- how let's do you determine- separate let's separate two things screening okay. from active surveillance screening yeah. you don't have a cancer yet you're right. just being monitored for a blood test a biomarker just like cholesterol is not the same as having a heart attack all right so psa is a tool to screen so we're using that to tell us when should we biopsy someone? Once you get a biopsy, then you get the pathologist to read it. Point one will be, is it a cancer or not? And then point two will be, if it is a cancer, what flavor is it? Is it one that's less aggressive, low on the Gleason scale, or more aggressive in its appearance, meaning uh, the eights, nines, and tens on the Gleason scale. So that's only after you have a biopsy. Okay. Now, when you have a biopsy that comes back as cancer, then you are left with, what do I do? And these days in the community, most people are initially biopsied by a urologist and they're the one that's going to tell you that you have the cancer or not. And I'll use the kind of phrase, they get first dibs on you, meaning they are the first one that gets to tell you what should you do about this cancer. All right. And so all of us, whether you're a medical oncologist like me, a radiotherapist or a urologist, we all have our biases about what you should do. We all have our point of view, although most of the time we generally will agree, but the urologist gets the first shot. And if they think you're a great candidate for surgery and uh, healthy and otherwise will tolerate the procedure and you're interested in having a radical prostatectomy, you see, they get that first shot to offer that. Now, let's just kind of go back and say, one of the things we try to do at the James is what's called our multidisciplinary prostate cancer clinic. So if you have a new diagnosis and someone has said you have prostate cancer, Our multidisciplinary clinic will see you in one afternoon, and you can talk to the urologist, radiation therapist, medical oncologist, all in one afternoon. So you get all the disciplines engaged. And I think this is something I'd love to see every man have in the the country after they're diagnosed is a multidisciplinary evaluation, but it's labor intensive and it takes a a whole afternoon and it's not as efficient. So hospitals tend to not like it because you're not just running people through the clinic every five minutes, you have to coordinate and you have to interact. And so, uh, but in terms of service to a patient, I mean, you can't ask for anything better. This gets the information you need you get an assessment as to the character of your cancer. You make decisions about what kind of staging a person may need, meaning imaging or scans to help us. And we often will have our dedicated prostate cancer pathologists also read the slides, regardless of where you had your biopsy, to make sure you have a second set of eyes 
to look at the prostate cancer on the biopsy and make sure that we are all comfortable with what the Gleason scoring is. Yeah, it sounds like in order to have a multidisciplinary clinic like they had at Dana-Farber, like you have it at the James, you need a large comprehensive cancer center with a lot of specialists and facilities, and you need a large number of patients to make it all work. And you have all those ingredients. Yeah, it, it, it really requires a certain sort of size and commitment to the space, the intellectual capital, and having all of the, the options for care at your site. So you need to have that. And, and I think we're able to put our urologists, radiation therapists, and medical oncologists all in the same clinic space. So patients can just move down the hall or we can all see them in the same, the same room in sequence. And I think when we move into our new building in 2023, this will even become more streamlined, easier, and really patient-friendly. I like the urologist to talk about surgery. I like the radiation oncologist to review the radiation. I like to be the person then that says, tell me what you're thinking. What are your questions? What are your concerns? What do we need to help you with so we can facilitate a decision? I don't want someone leaving saying, I've accumulated a lot of information, but I don't know how to process it and I can't make a decision. I don't want people leaving feeling I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. We want people to leave saying, I think I've got all the information I need. My wife and I are going to go home and talk about it. And we're going to weigh the risks and benefits and we're going to make a decision. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of patients that they left the James feeling very confident about the plan they worked out together with their oncologist. That's key. I mean, you know, people come into this not with a lot of experience. Sometimes this is the first time that they've had a cancer diagnosis or even someone close to their family. And, um, or they come in with what I call baggage, meaning I've had people say, you know, my golf, golfing buddy had prostate cancer and he had surgery and now he leaks so much that he has to stop at the restroom every third hole and it's slowing up my game. So I will never do surgery. <laughs> so we have to correct that, that kind of anecdotal experience and say, yes, incontinence is one of the complications, but you know what? Most of the men after they've recovered from surgery have pretty good control. And even if they don't, there are a number of things that we can do in our clinics to work on the incontinence issue. So people come in with a lot of anecdotal information that sometimes isn't exactly the norm. And so we've kind of got to erase that blackboard and start from scratch sometimes and uh, really try to get them the good information. What are the real statistics? Give them the kind of data they need that kind of helps them put side effects in perspective and hopefully come up with a decision that's comfortable for them. Now, before I want to hear a little more about the side effects and treatment options, but sure. first to just to go back to active surveillance, I'm curious about what that, that process is. So the first thing, you know, we want to do is kind of make the frame and that frame is what's this person's health? How long are they going to live? If they have a good life expectancy, that pushes me towards, we need to make a decision about what to do. Now, 
The second thing we do is we say, what do we know about the cancer? Is this one that looks indolent, not very aggressive, low PSA, low Gleason score, low volume versus one that looks more aggressive, higher Gleason score, higher PSA. If it's on the lower end, we're going to include the option of active surveillance as a treatment approach. What does that mean? That means that a man with a diagnosed cancer is going to defer a treatment of the cancer today, and we are going to monitor this. And active is the key word of the active surveillance. This used to be called, and you'll still see it on the internet, watchful waiting. I don't like that term. Yeah, That's like, you know, you're standing there with the guillotine and somebody's waiting to pull the, pull the string and have it cut your head off. No, we're not watchful waiting, waiting for something bad to happen. We're active surveillance. We're saying this cancer looks indolent. Maybe it won't become a problem, but we need to actively monitor this. Now, that's going to be several things. You're going to have serial PSAs done. You're not going to skip a year. Most people will do two or three PSAs a year when you're on active surveillance. Two, you're going to talk to the person and you're going to ask, do you have any new symptoms, any urologic issues, change in your urination, infections, blood in the urine, pain in the pelvis or bones? And the third thing is, if you choose active surveillance, we pretty much always recommend that by one year, we're likely to do a repeat biopsy. Now, if that biopsy comes back and the cancer is the same, low grade, PSA is not changing, often we will now monitor for a few years before you would do another biopsy. Now, what causes men who are in active surveillance to make a change of course? Well, if the biopsies come back that the cancer is changing, changing its histology, becoming more aggressive, or involving more of the prostate. So instead of being one out of 12 cores, it's now five out of 12 cores that are having cancer. We know the cancer is progressing. That may move you from what is an active surveillance space into a treatment space. Now, before we talk a little about treatment, you've been doing this long enough and active surveillance has been around long enough. Do you have patients who are 10 years or more into active surveillance without well, certainly. The, okay certainly so certainly it, but i would say that you know and depending on whose study you look at around the country you will probably see half of the men who are on active surveillance at some point down the road choose or need some other kind of treatment okay and, yeah and perhaps one of the reasons another reason for active surveillance is Compared, if someone was first diagnosed 10 years ago and has been in active surveillance all this time, the improvements in treatment options are, are just, there's more and better ones. Well, I think we, we, we discuss these issues with all of our patients, where, no matter where they are in that cascade with prostate cancer, that you know, my goal is always to get you further into the future so that better treatments are available and we can take advantage of them. And so I, th I think that is true. But you know, the challenge for active surveillance is that, you know, what you don't want to happen is miss your opportunity to cure it. 
you don't right. want to let the horse out of the barn. So this is why you need to do it carefully, need to do it diligently. Don't just kind of have your one visit and say, oh, the doctor said I, I don't need to do anything. So and then disappear because these are the people that end up getting into trouble down the road. So, you know, active surveillance means that you need to monitor it just like you need to buy monitor hypertension or high cholesterol and make sure that we're adjusting the course if and when we need to. So let's, I know this is, a, this could be a podcast on its own, but just, you know, to help summarize, what are, what are some of the improvements in treatment in, in surgery and perhaps yeah. immunotherapy? What, what mean, where are let's, you? Let's just start at the, at the beginning of people newly diagnosed and the cancer has not spread outside the prostate. I mean, I, I just have to say that it's how remarkable the surgical advances have been for a prostatectomy, meaning the surgical removal of the prostate. And literally, you'll, you'll spend one night in the hospital. It's just mind-boggling. And I think now that we've got a whole cadre of surgeons that are uh, well-trained in robotics and have done hundreds and thousands of cases, the robotic prostatectomy now is astounding. Now, in parallel for men with what we call localized disease, radiation therapy has likewise improved enormously. And this is where technology again has uh, done us a great favor. So the imaging of the prostate so that you know the three-dimensional size and shape and being able to take imaging of the prostate through a computer program, into very sophisticated machines that deliver the radiation therapy, we're able to deliver a curative dose of radiation to the prostate and conform the radiation beam to the size and the shape of your individual prostate so that we get greater cures with far less exposure of the normal tissues to the radiation. So the complications that in the old days were quite common, irritation of the bowel and the bladder, skin irritation from radiation, these things have just diminished to a, to a level that's astounding to me. And so I'm so impressed with my colleagues in, in radiation therapy that do this work and do it so well for our men. And we also have the option for some folks, depending on the shape and the location of the prostate, of doing what's called brachytherapy or the implantation of radiation by seeds. But all of these are options. And I think these days, this is like going and buying a suit. So you talk with the radiation therapist and you get the treatment that is best suited to your situation. And so it's very personalized and, and done exceptionally well these days by the radiation therapist. What about the situations where the it's not localized, where it has sure. spread? So, and you would, I'm guessing you would do what you just said, but then you'd also have to do other things, right? Well, not always, not always. So, this is if the cancer, you know, sometimes we see people that present to the emergency room with bone pain and they do an x ray and you've got a cancer in the spine, and then they do some blood tests and the PSA comes back as 500. Mm. Oops, we know we have a prostate cancer that's spread to the bone. And if the cancer has spread to the bone, the battleground for us is not in your prostate unless it's causing you some issues with urination. I mean, our battleground is in the other places, the other places that can take your life. 
So we need to bring systemic therapies to bear that treat the cancer everywhere that it may be in the body. Now, so many things going on in that space, and we could spend hours and hours talking about many of the new advances. But let me summarize the treatment of systemic disease this way. The foundation remains what's called hormone therapy. And hormone therapy means taking away the hormone in men that is the main driver of the cancer, which is testosterone, all right, the male hormone. And testosterone for prostate cancer is like putting gasoline on your charcoal grill, all right? And if you take it away, almost every man, except the ones with the most aggressive cancer, will get a response to hormone therapy. And this is where the 33 flavors comes in. You may have some men whose hormone therapy only works for three months or six months or a year. The average is probably going to be two to three years now, but we also have men that will go 10, 15 years and get complete remissions to hormone therapy. So that is a big range. And you really can't be sure when you go into it, start hormone therapy. Is this guy going to get a great response or is this guy going to get one that's a little shorter of duration? But hormone therapy, taking away testosterone is the foundation of treatment. This used to be done initially the same way you do it in farm animals by surgical castration, removing a man's testicles. But these days, the drug companies have found a way to use drugs that can effectively lower your testosterone without the surgery. So we now have a whole series of drugs that uh, we can bring to bear in this, what we call hormone sensitive space. And they are being used in novel combinations to get greater benefit for men. And I really see most men getting many years of benefit from hormone therapy. Now, chemotherapy, everybody kind of has their own experience with what they think chemotherapy is about. But in general, I will say chemotherapy for prostate is on the kinder and gentler side. What I mean by that is that it's usually pretty tolerable. It's not easy to get chemotherapy, traditional chemotherapy. I mean, the doses can be every three to four weeks and they are associated with a certain portfolio of nuisance side effects. But many men can get a good response. And I've had some people go years getting a good benefit from chemotherapy. But I think the, the art of being a medical oncologist is knowing how much to give, how long, and, uh, and making sure that you're, you're getting the best benefit with the least amount of misery and promoting quality of life. Now, what we're seeing coming into play are new targeted therapies. We know that if we take a man's cancer and do genetic evaluation of the cancer for the mutations that uh, that particular cancer has. There are some new drugs that we can use that target certain subtypes of prostate cancer. If you have a certain DNA repair gene mutation, there are now drugs that we can use that give that man a better benefit, whereas the drug might not work in another man's prostate cancer. We have also seen the first foot in the door for immune therapy for prostate cancer. So the first medicine that was approved 
in the space of immune therapy for prostate cancer was called Provenge. It's available. It is a type of treatment where we take your white blood cells, your immune cells, and we send them off for education, meaning we take your immune cells and we teach them how to attack antigens that might be on a prostate cancer. And then we bring those cells back to you like a blood transfusion, and you receive those back in three doses over a period of weeks. And I would say that, you know, and again, I'll, I'll look, the way I look at this, I think I see one out of five men that might benefit uh, to that. And it's why we do use it when there's a window of opportunity. But I look at it as the first step in a long journey. The immune therapy that is going to come in the months and the next few years for prostate cancer is going to be far more impactful and effective. So we are on a revolution of seeing immunotherapeutics, not just for prostate, but for all kinds of cancers. And I think prostate has been one that's been a little more challenging because the cancer has learned how to hide from your immune system. We've made far better advances in immune therapy for lung cancer and melanoma, two kinds of cancers that have lots of mutations. Whereas prostate cancer is one that your body by and large just kind of uses itself and doesn't know how to attack it. And the prostate cancer also can put out a bit of a smoke screen, shall we say, to hide from the immune system. But new tools, new drugs, new interventions are coming into play that are going to break down that ability of the cancer to hide from the immune system. And we're going to see some really wonderful advances in clinical trials coming forward in this space. And I'll add one other type of therapy that's kind of related to immunology. And this goes back to our story about PSA. So PSA is a protein made by the prostate cancer. Some is in your blood, which we use as a test, but some of it sticks to the membrane of the cancer cell. And we are now seeing new treatments coming into play where an antibody to the PSA carries either radioactivity or a drug, and you get an infusion of the antibody with the drug, and it carries it directly to the cancer cell. So it targets only the cancer and does not cause the systemic side effects that would occur to other organs. So we're going to see these antibody-directed therapies coming into play for prostate cancer, and I'm hoping the first one will be available and approved for widespread use even this summer. So oh, wow. we're, yeah. we're very excited about all of these new options coming into play for prostate cancer. There'll be lots of new clinical trials uh, for people that are eligible. And it's just an, a, a time of just amazing progress and excitement uh, for advanced prostate cancer. Wow. That does sound exciting and, and that there's going to be more and more and better options. So that was an amazing, great overview on so many different areas. And the thing I'm going to take away from this for me personally, and I think perhaps other men should is make sure to get your PSA, monitor it, understand it. And if, and when, if, if you are one of the many people who are diagnosed 
it's really best to be treated at a multidisciplinary clinic at a major comprehensive cancer center like the James or depending where you live, another one. But um, that's what I'm going to take away from this. Well, we think we provide a great service. I mean, we see lots of people that get great care in the community and come to us for clinical trials sometimes when they need them. But I do think that uh, multidisciplinary care at the, at the very beginning is, is really what every man deserves. And it really helps personalize and tailor the treatment that each individual needs. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. That was great. My privilege. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.